Welcome to the University of South Dakota's podcast, Crowded Hour. We know the COVID-19 global health pandemic is raising all sorts of questions about the way we live. Over the next several weeks, we plan to share the perspectives of some of our faculty in fields like public health, economics, education, and more, in hopes they can shed light on this situation and the path forward. As always, thank you for listening, and go Yotes! On today's episode, we speak with Victor Huber, an associate professor of basic biomedical sciences and an expert on viruses like COVID-19. Victor, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Um, Well, we've had you on this podcast here before. We were talking um, about vaccines and the flu, and that's a lot of what you research here at USD. Um, I guess just before we kind of get into the coronavirus, can you just give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do at USD? Yes. as, uh, as mentioned, I'm Victor Huber, and I'm an associate professor in basic biomedical sciences, and I study how viruses and the host immune system interact, uh, specifically in the context of uh, vaccine-induced immunity and for influenza viruses, secondary bacterial infections. Well, obviously, we have a, a lot that we want to talk with you today about, um, just at least initially, I guess, what is COVID-19? So COVID-19 stands for Coronavirus Disease of 2019. It is caused by a novel or new coronavirus that first began circulating in humans in late 2019. This virus has since been officially renamed or named SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, when people, I guess, reference uh, this concept of a novel coronavirus, what does that actually mean? Uh, So this is a new coronavirus uh, that started circulating in humans. Uh, Coronaviruses have circulated for decades in animals and humans and have been known to do so. Um, And often the coronaviruses that circulate in humans cause things like the common cold. Um, This virus is a new coronavirus that is very different from the ones that uh, have traditionally circulated in humans. And uh, that's why it gets this new designation as a novel coronavirus. Yeah, I guess, how did this pandemic start? The pandemic uh, started, again, circulating in 2019, late 2019. Um, And it really started when uh, the virus began transmitting with relative ease throughout the human population. Um, You know, there are a lot of theories going on now about the transmission events that led to the beginning of that circulation, but nobody really knows uh, at this stage um, what caused uh, the the transmission to begin. What's known is this virus now does transmit very well uh, between humans, um, and uh, often it's usually associated with an interspecies transmission event to begin with. But again, that's uh, that's not been fully confirmed yet. Yeah, I guess you know with your expertise on viruses like this, and obviously with everything that everyone is experienced right now. This might kind of seem like an obvious question, but how significant a threat, I guess, is this virus? So this is a virus that is new to the circulation in humans. Um, It has a lot of uh, sort of susceptible hosts um, in the population since no one has immunity against it. And so it has the ability to spread with relative ease again throughout the the human population. so the significance is seen in the in the transmissibility and the widespread sort of infection. And then there's a range of responses against the virus itself. So they can be in the mild to moderate category, which includes anything that leads up to basically hospitalization. And then the more severe uh, cases that get into hospitalization and then uh, intensive care and things like that. Um, but uh, it's it's very significant threat because it can uh, pretty much infect just about anybody 
um, and uh, spread pretty easily throughout the population. Yeah, I know that within the last five, 10 years, we've had a couple of other um, virus-related issues. Um, SARS, the, the MERS was another one. I mean, why has this, um, I guess, situation been much more difficult to contain or control than maybe some of these past infectious viruses that we've seen the past few years? So with this virus, um, again, we, we haven't had a lot of time to really study this and understand how it does uh, transmit between people and how it infects uh, individuals. Uh, but what we do know is that it is spreading uh, much more rapidly in the human population than uh, SARS and MERS uh, have and, and, and did. Um, you know, there are a lot of theories out there now about how the virus interacts with host cells, the sort of tightness within the, with which the virus binds to the cells and gains entry into the host. Um, but as of right now, it's really not known what characteristics of the virus make it so uh, good at doing what it's doing right now. So with your understanding, I guess, and I understand it's all you know, fluid, is, the, is COVID-19 then more infectious, more deadly, or both compared to, I guess, some of the other viruses that we normally experience? Um, so it's one of those uh, questions, again, with, uh, with the lack of immunity in the population, um, and being able to spread so easily, um, that means that it, it makes it, uh, you know, uh, a big, uh, quite a big concern. Um, the severity of the cases that we're seeing uh, does seem pretty high. Uh, the sort of percent uh, death within the people who get to uh, the progressed and advanced disease um, is very high compared to other um, infectious diseases. But I think a lot of that relates to the fact that we have no baseline immunity, no previous exposure to it, no therapies, no vaccines. Um, that's what makes it uh, such a big concern right now. Yeah, I think that something that people struggle with is just, it, it's kind of like you said, there's no real comparison point that I think people can use. And so they maybe, oh, analogize um, to different viruses like the flu, right? Because that's just what they have experience with. You know, for people that say, hey, look, the flu kills a lot of people. The flu is actually really dangerous. Um, isn't this just like the flu? I mean, what would you tell, I guess, people that make that comparison? So, um, you know, a lot of times we tend to downplay um, influenza. And I think, you know, that's uh, started to be a bigger sort of topic uh, in, in discussion lately, uh, reminding ourselves that we do have um, on average 40,000 people in the United States die every year due to the influenza virus. And, um, you know, for something like uh, influenza, we do have that, we have therapies, we have vaccines, we have prior exposure that provides us with some immunity. Um, and with this virus, we don't have um, any of that. So it's, it's a very different uh, feel for something that can actually spread uh, rapidly throughout the population for which we have no therapies that have been proven, we have no vaccines, and we have no pre-existing immunity that can give us at least that sort of comfort and that knowledge that, um, you know, th that we know what the virus is actually doing within the host. This is a, a purely unknown uh, as far as how things are progressing at this stage. You know, do we know how the virus is transmitted? The virus, uh, currently the, the knowledge, uh, the, the research is showing uh, respiratory droplets and contact with contaminated services. What that means is um, you usually have to be within uh, close range of someone who's infected and or touch a surface that uh, an infected person 
uh, touched. It does not appear to be in the really small droplets that can persist in the air for long periods of time. Um, but again, the story uh, changes as we learn more about how this virus is spreading and, and learn more about the, uh, the virology itself and, and the spread of, of the virus. Um, we're learning new things all the time about how long it can stay on the surface uh, after someone touches it and, uh, and all kinds of things about how uh, long the virus can persist. Well, and I think that, you know, just as people try to make decisions about how they can best protect their own health and, and honestly, the health and safety of other people. I mean, how worried should I be when I go grocery shopping or I maybe pick up a piece of mail or I'm just out in public, you know, at a public park um, and, you know, I walk past someone. I mean, should I like hold my breath um, if I, if I, you know, go within the, the six feet perimeter? I mean, what is, I guess, legitimate public hate or public um, safety and health measures versus like paranoia? Right. I think, you know, with social distancing and, and uh, maintaining the three to six feet, I think that's very important um, to uh, think about when you're out in public. Um, the uh, I think the, the bigger thing to think about when you're uh, sort of doing a, a you know, cost benefit ratio, of those types of um interactions and, and things like picking up mail or going uh, to the grocery store uh, is the risk that you have uh, yourself. The people who are at risk of, of getting infected maybe want to take some extra precautions like using disinfectant, um, ordering their groceries, having them uh, delivered, and then using disinfectant before they bring the groceries into their house. Um, and uh, But for most people, I think, you know, we can as long as we maintain the social distancing and, and remain conscious of, of uh, how we're, uh, you know, handling ourselves in public, we should be uh, uh, able to use that guidance to get us through this uh, part of the pandemic. Well, I mean, you know, because I think that even the term social distancing, it's kind of like new to, you know, the lexicon of, of American life. What What do you view as social distancing versus like the CDC guidelines that say, you know, 10 people shouldn't be in a public gathering at one at one place. You know, I've, I guess, listened to some experts and read online, you know, that you should really be thinking about this as like a family union unit. And so, you know, even if you go hang out with your friends um, and there's only three of them at a house, you may, you know, still have exposed yourself to the virus. I mean, in your opinion, I guess, what do you consider to be social distancing? I, uh, I would agree with the you know, maintenance of uh, sort of the family um, unit, uh, trying to sort of limit the, the number of people uh, that you're interacting with during this stage. Remember, there's a lot of uh, susceptible individuals out there and you usually can uh, you know, have the virus without showing symptoms for a number of days afterwards. So, you know, going from one group of 10 to the other group of 10 in, in sort of rapid succession uh, would definitely help you give the virus plenty of opportunities uh, to continue spreading. So you definitely, if you're using the guidance of 10, you probably want to limit that 10 and stay within that group of 10 uh, for a period of time. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the guidance I would use is really, you know, this is a time to, to connect with people through other sorts of media, um, you know, phone, uh, internet, FaceTime, um, and maintain that social distance if you can. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about just with your background is the statistical models that I think have just been floating around the Internet. And in some sense, I think they're like incredibly helpful um, because they, 
they provide a visual representation of what we might be able to expect over the course of the next, you know, four to six weeks, um, you know, possibly even longer as this virus really starts to take hold in the United States. In another sense, I, I feel like, you know, just watching a graph grow, it's hard for me to comprehend the magnitude um, of some of the numbers that get floated around um, by like the federal government when they're talking about like best case scenario, we're still thinking about 100, 200,000 deaths. Um, I don't know if you can just explain to our audience maybe a little bit about the exponential risk factor um, if we don't take maybe some of these preventative measures really seriously. And I, I guess how scientists like you kind of come up with these risk models um, when they're faced with viruses like this. Yes. Uh, so the, uh, the models that are out there show, uh, you know, sort of predict how the virus will spread in this susceptible population. And they use, you know, mathematical numbers that are derived from real experiences. Uh, we're currently looking at uh, SARS-CoV-2 as having uh, what's called an R-naught of about 1.4 to 3.9. That uh, means that basically for every infected person, uh, you can expect one to four more people to become infected. And so that's how they de develop some of these, uh, these curves and these statistics. Um, and if you uh, watch the uh, sites that are tracking sort of the progression of the disease in the United States, you can see that we're actually growing uh, at the rate of some of those predicted models, which is uh, part of the fear uh, that we're seeing with and and what we're seeing with this coronavirus um, as it as it circulates in humans. Um, so having that uh, susceptible population and those uh, numbers there to back it up, um, we can see the growth. And what we have to do now is sort of uh, reduce the number of susceptible individuals by trying to maintain uh, separation from large groups and large gatherings that we can. Uh, you know, reduce the transmission of the virus. You know, what's one thing, um, I guess, as an expert on viruses like this, that you wish people knew? Um, so I would uh, reach out to people and, and want them to know a little more about uh, virus pathogenesis, the importance of vaccination, um, and how these all play a role in our ability to understand disease and to treat and prevent disease. Um, viruses can easily infect individuals and take over uh, their, uh, the function of their cells as they turn the, the, the host cells into basically virus production factories. In order to do that, they can try to dampen the host immune response to provide themselves an advantage as they gain speed in the host. Um, and we don't understand how or why SARS-CoV-2 is so good at doing this yet. And we need a lot of research and a lot of understanding to try and figure that out. Um, and then in, in this current stage of the pandemic, the uh, absence of vaccines uh, leaves us unable to provide something to uninfected individuals that would prevent them from getting infected. And so the research that we have to do uh, to understand both the pathogenesis and what will make a good vaccine um, is critical for us to limit this pandemic and then prevent future circulation of this virus. Well, and, you know, to talk a little bit maybe about, um, you know, what we can do to prevent this, obviously we've talked about social distancing. You know, one concept that I think people kind of float out there is this idea of flattening the curve. Um, I guess, what does that mean? So flattening the curve basically refers to um, the fact that we have, a again, a, a completely susceptible population 
And if you assume everyone's able to become infected, if you allow everyone to get infected very early on, you're going to have a large number of cases and a large number of hospitalizations um, very quickly. If you socially distance and sort of flatten that curve, spread out the number of cases, assuming that you're still going to get the same number of cases in the hospital and hospitalized, you, you spread that out so that it happens now over a matter of months instead of a matter of weeks, then that puts less of a burden on the healthcare system to uh, take care of those patients. So from a public you know, health standpoint, it's not necessarily about preventing the number of cases that we expect to see of COVID-19, but just about being able to allocate the resources we have um, to take care of people when they do get sick in, in a you know, better manner. Yes, and, and if you look at that, uh, you'll see that, uh, you know, when you flatten the curve, you do extend the amount of time, uh, you know, that the uh, that things progress because you're, uh, you're um, limiting the number of hospitalizations, you're limiting the number of infections, um, which means that these, uh, uh, the situation may last even a little bit longer, but it reduces the burden uh, on a daily basis, which is really what we're seeing as a critical problem, especially in cities like New York and Louisiana, where they're now starting to see a lot of cases and a lot of intensive care units filled with patients um, and running out of things like ventilators and ways to help the people who are extremely sick uh, with the virus recover. But do you think that this virus will impact rural areas as much as urban areas? I mean, is the fact that just the population density of urban areas are obviously so much more larger. There might be a way for rural areas to escape some of the carnage. I mean, what are what are your thoughts maybe about how it might affect, you know, different populations, different even countries or states, um, just because of the way their population works and maybe um, the way culturally they interact? I know, you know, and part of the reason why I ask this question is I've, you know, just read online that they think that part of the reason why it, it really affected Italy is um, just the structure of their family units and the fact that there's have a larger uh, larger older population in Italy also made the results you know significantly worse what would you kind of say to some of that um, so the biggest take home for this from a sort of virology standpoint um, is the the virus doesn't necessarily know that it's in New York City or South Dakota um, it's going to find an uh, a susceptible host and it's going to infect uh, that host. Um, so even though you live in a rural area or a smaller community, you still need to be aware of that social distancing and maintaining uh, your family unit so that you can protect yourself and your family and limit the spread um, of the virus. Uh, because once it does get into that community, um, it can spread uh, pretty easily. We're seeing that in, in even Iowa and Nebraska, um, you know, there are a number of cases there that are uh, that are uh, progressing to hospitalization and, and beyond. Um, once the virus enters into the community, um, it can spread very rapidly. You know, obviously, I want to um, don't want to take up too much more of your time, but you know, just as being an expert on vaccines, um, I think a lot of people are wondering. You know, first, can we develop a vaccine? Um, that will stop COVID-19. How long is that process going to take? Um, you know, I, I know there's so many variables and it's such a fluid situation, but just based on your experience and how this process kind of normally works, what do you anticipate being, I guess, like the timeline of a vaccine? And are you hopeful that one can be created? 
Um, so vaccines uh, do take a long time uh, to develop. Um, and uh, the one, one thing that we do have working for us um, is having experience with coronaviruses uh, in animals and in humans uh, for a long period of time, including things like SARS and MERS for which uh, we've worked on understanding the immune response a little bit and seeing how uh, to develop antibodies uh, that can protect uh, against those infections. Um, with SARS-CoV-2, we don't know, uh, you know how long it's going to take for us to understand those interactions and create a vaccine that uh, protects and is safe uh, for, the, for the population. So, um, you know, I, I'm confident that we can develop a vaccine uh, against it. It just may take a little bit of time before we get um, you know, the right one uh, that's that's perfect for, for widespread use. You know, are there therapeutic treatments available? Um, I mean, I know that, you know, something that you hear about a lot in the news, just from, a again, a public health um, standpoint, is like the need for ventilators, just the way that illness um, affects the lungs and makes it difficult for uh, people infected to get the amount of oxygen they need. Um, you know, are there drugs that you can take that maybe lessen the severity of the illness or what, I guess, do you anticipate on that end? So with uh, therapeutics, what they're doing right now is trying to take um, already approved therapeutics and uh, for other pathogens and other infectious diseases and repurpose them uh, for SARS-CoV-2. And one of the, uh, the things about that is um, we're not doing a lot of, uh, you know, well-controlled clinical trials at this stage because the, the, the urgency of treating patients um, it outweighs uh, the, the need to wait and do the, the full trials. Eventually, we're going to have to go back and do these trials to find out what really does work to limit and prevent uh, infection and, and progression of the disease. Um, as we learn more about the virus, we'll be able to understand that uh, dynamic much better. Um, and it's a situation that's developing and every day. It seems there's new uh, potential targets uh, coming up that we can maybe use for therapeutics and, and uh, you know, eventually we'll figure out one or more that, that truly work and can, can help uh, the wide general population. You know, I have to say the probably the most terrifying thing <laughs> I have read about the, the virus is just the notion that it can adapt and evolve itself. And that's, that's likely the way it was transmitted right to the human population. And if it operates like other cold um, viruses, you might have immunity for a while and then you might lose it. Um, can you talk a little bit about immunity when it comes to viruses like this? And if you do get the um, COVID-19 virus, will you be immune? Do we know for how long? That's an excellent question. Yeah, we, we don't know um, much about the immune response yet. We're learning that as it, as it goes along. Um, with viruses and with other infectious diseases, we look at the immune response before infection, look at the immune response after infection, and develop what are called correlates of protective immunity, uh, things that you can use to, to associate with uh, a protected person that can be mimicked so that um, you can sort of indicate that that, per, that someone will be uh, protected against infection. And that's what we try to do with vaccination. You try to identify correlates of protection and vaccinate to achieve those correlates of protective immunity. 
Um, as it stands right now, we don't know what those correlates of protection are for this virus. Um, and we need to learn and understand those before we can uh, know if someone who has been infected is truly immune and, um, and whether vaccines that we develop will hit those targets of those correlates of protection. You know, people talk about the risk, I guess, of like a second wave um, when it comes to viruses and, and health pandemics. Um, what do people, I guess, mean by that? And what is the risk of that? So many pandemics uh, historically have been associated with multiple waves of spread. Uh, the 1918 pandemic uh, of influenza had three waves, with the second wave being the most severe. Um, and since we had not isolated influenza viruses during that time, we don't understand or know how the virus changed during each of those waves. And uh, that's something we can maybe learn a little bit more about as we watch the developing situation uh, with this virus. Um, the, uh, the second wave and, and subsequent waves will depend on a few things. Number one, the ability of the immune system to protect against reinfection and then uh, the spread of infection. Um, one, uh, one story from the 1918 pandemic that's uh, interesting to think about uh, is the story of Australia. Australia um, actually implemented a maritime quarantine that prevented um, it required a quarantine before anyone could come into uh, their country, and they were able to avoid the first two waves of the 1918 pandemic, and then they opened their borders too early and didn't anticipate the third wave of the pandemic, and that's when they were hit the heaviest. So you have to keep an eye on all of these changing situations um, with the host immune response, with changes in the virus, and understand how uh, we're moving through these waves in order to make uh, good predictions about how to move forward. Yeah, Victor, I don't want to put you on the spot here. Um, but again, I just obviously this is just sobering um, talking about this issue. Is there any bright spot? Is, is there anything that you would want to tell the public about where we're at or where do you think this is going to evolve so that we can maybe sort of better prepare ourselves mentally for how long this might um, last or just changes that we're going to have to make? Um, to deal with this? So as I mentioned, we've had a lot of uh, research into different coronaviruses um, over the years, and we have a lot of uh, you know, top-notch researchers in the United States looking into things like virus pathogenesis, host interaction with the virus, uh, development of vaccines. Um, you know, when you put that many great minds together to uh, target one uh, goal, uh, you're definitely going to come up with therapies and vaccines that will help us uh, stop and limit the spread of this uh, pandemic during this stage and this uh, uh, current wave and even the next wave potentially of the pandemic and then also help us to understand how to prevent this in the future so that um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't have such the impact that it, it is having right now. Well, Victor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and talking to us about this issue. Um, obviously, it's something that just is you know, dominating all of our lives, but um, just really appreciate the knowledge that you're able to bring to it and obviously appreciate the research that you've been doing and will continue to do. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour. Stick with us as we continue to bring you new information and perspectives surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Until next time. Wash your hands, stay safe, and stay home. Go Yotes!